I'd like to start off my time this morning just asking you this question. Do you ever feel like you find yourself spending all of your resources, or most of them, whether it's just your, your time, your effort, your energy, whatever, the resources that you have, that you find yourself just sinking all of those resources into trying to live up to your potential? Whatever, you know, we'll, put, we'll put some air quotes over potential, and I'll tell you why in a second. But you're trying to live up to your potential, and also trying to live down the weaknesses that you find yourself facing. Here's, here's what I mean, mean by this. You know this ever since you were aware of your surroundings and, and the people around you. Go back to your earliest memories. Chances are you knew that there was a lot expected of you. You, you heard the expectations of others and you started to expect things of yourself. And there's this incredible drive that I think we develop from, from childhood all the way forward into adulthood, this drive to somehow prove that we can do those things. We can meet those expectations. We can exceed those expectations, and we fight very, very hard to reach that potential. But I think going as far back as you can remember, you also recognize there's some things that you struggle with, things that maybe you don't do as well as you would like to do, or things that other people point out that maybe they don't like about how you, you know, wish you wouldn't do this, or wish you would do this differently, or you're not doing this well enough. And the people around us can really just ramp this up, can't they? You know, some of, some of you in this room, you grew up in a home where the message was nearly constantly that you had to perform. If you didn't bring home a report card with straight A's, then it was like there was something wrong with you. If you didn't get an incredible, you know, if, if you messed up in a t-ball game and something was wrong with you. And the only time that you got the message that, hey, you're doing great, you're doing awesome, is when you had a perfect score, when you had a perfect, uh, uh, a perfect report card, when you had your parents went to parent-teacher conferences and the teacher said that you were the brightest kid in the class. Then it was like, okay, and then we're all right. But in, if it was anything short of that, eh, not so good. Or maybe, maybe some of you, that wasn't your experience, but maybe... At some point, you got engaged and married to somebody that loves you, but the message was constantly, you're not doing this well enough, you're not doing this well enough. If you would do this better, uh, we could be in a better relationship. Our marriage would be better. If you could do this better, we'd be closer. If you could do this better, things would be different between us. But because they're not and because they can't be, then I'm going to withhold some of myself from you until you can straighten up. Um, you aren't lovable unless you can perform for me. I'm looking for performance as soon as you can really... Live up to what, and that's why I put air quotes around potential. When your spouse, as soon as you can live up to your potential, because I know you can do these things, you're just choosing not to. As soon as you live up to your potential, then, you know, our marriage could be so much better. And so, for many of us, we find ourselves, whether it was our upbringing, or whether it was romantic relationships, or maybe somewhere else we got this message. We started hearing the message that our value is determined by our performance. And so now... We spend a lot of our life doing everything that we can to prove that we're worthwhile. And we perform, and we perform, and we perform, but it's just never good enough. And so our whole life, all of our energy is just zapped, because, and we're tired, and we're stressed. And forgive me for this, because I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you, but we get cranky. We get cranky because we're stressed and we can't seem to perform well enough. And it's, it's a tough life. 
And I think as a culture, we're more performance obsessed than any American culture I can point the finger to. We really do. It's like our whole life is absorbed in trying to prove our worth. And so if, if, if any of what I just said connects with you, this message is completely for you. As a matter of fact, God really took me to school this week. I, I had a whole plan for how I was going to approach this story that I'm going to talk to you about here in a moment. Uh, and God turned it uh, completely around and taught me things I'd never seen before. And really, God worked me over on this. So if this talk feels heavy to you, you should know it. It was because God really took me to school. And it was heavy for me all week. I just want to share with you what God showed me because I really think if you're struggling to perform in a relationship, in a job, in your life in general, this morning could be the morning where you get set free of that. And, I'm, and so we're going to start off by going to the book of Acts and we're going to talk about a story of a man named Saul. Maybe a familiar figure for you, maybe not. But here's what you need to know about Saul. Saul came into a family where he was instantly in a high-pressure situation. Uh, he had a, a potentially a famous family. We don't know exactly how it all worked, but we do know that there was something significant about Paul, Paul's family because his family had been granted Roman citizenship, and they were a Jewish family. Rome ruled the world. Rome didn't just give away citizenship. That wasn't the way that it worked, and so they would have had to have done, somebody in his family had to do something famous and special, and so Everybody would have known him. Paul's dad was a great businessman. It looks like he turned a small little leather, leather working business into a leather working empire. I mean, it was like being born into the Kennedy family. When he was born, everybody looked at him and went, I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder how far he'll go. Look at the pedigree. Look at the background, the business background, and the, the you know, I mean, and he's a dual citizen. I mean, the guy is the, you know, respected in the Jewish world because his family was respected among the, the, the Jewish families there, respected in the Roman world. How far can this kid go? Go. And then that was made even more reinforced when, uh, just by the name that he was given. It was important what you were named by your parents because your parents were trying to say something with the name that they gave you. And so when Saul was born and his dad named him Saul, you have to know that Saul was a royal name and kind of uncommon for a parent to name their kid after the first king of Israel. Right? And then beyond that, Saul, the name Saul means um, in demand, asked for, kind of a big deal. Right? If, if you're, if you're, you may be this person or you may know this person at work, but there's always that person who everybody is looking for when there's a problem. Right? Go get them. And, and, and people are afraid to make a decision without consulting this person. And what Saul's dad was saying when he named him Saul is he's going to be that guy. He's going to be in demand. And then he gets to be 11 or 12. He's doing okay in middle school. And his dad comes to him and he says, son, you're doing pretty good in middle school. I have enrolled you at Harvard Law as a double major. Uh, 11, it's about time you go to college. I'm sending you to Harvard. I've, I've enrolled you in political science and, and uh, you're gonna get your law degree and I expect you to get straight A's. And it's pretty much what happened. His dad sent him to a, a long ways away. He, he has to move away from his family to go study uh, law. Now, here's what you need to know, and I so, cannot, I, do, I so do not have time to go into any length with this, but you need to know that at this point in time, religion and law were all mixed up, not, and I say mixed up, that has a negative connotation. It was, the lines were very blurry in the Jewish culture between religion and law, because for a long time, God had been the king of Israel, early, much earlier um, in the story. Eventually Israel had kings, but there was quite a while where God was Israel's king. And so God had given them laws to govern their culture and also just to explain his character and who he was um, and explain the law of sowing and reaping, things that they needed to do in order to have blessing in their lives. So lawyers 
were kind of like ministers, and ministers were kind of like lawyers, and there was some overlap. There were some people who were ministers who didn't really prosecute cases or interpret cases, and there were some lawyers who weren't really trying to, you know, they, they, didn't, they weren't carrying on roles in the temple, but there was, this incre- there was this special group of people that was kind of in the overlap. We call them Pharisees, and these guys were experts in the law, and they would be um, people who especially would prosecute legal cases and, and interpret, um, uh, adjudicate, you know, legal disputes. And, and uh, as well, they were fixtures in the temple. And they, 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 were, they were fixtures in the religious scene. Um, and so if you, wanted to, if you wanted your kid to be one of those, if you wanted your kid to be a Pharisee, um, especially if you wanted them to be rec- a recognized, top-notch Pharisee, well, you would send them to Jewish law school. And there were a couple, but there was one that stands out. And it was sort of like an Ivy League school. Um, as I said, it was far away from where uh, Saul grew up. Uh, and it was a place where you would go because you had some sort of Roman connection. Of course, Saul was a Roman citizen. Because there you would not just learn Jewish, Jewish law, you'd also learn Roman law and Roman customs and Roman politics so that when you left there, you would be one of those cream of the crop, sought for people that was, a, that was comfortable in a Roman court, comfortable in a Jewish court, respected on all grounds, and because Saul had citizenship in both cases, it was like he was always going to be the best of the best. He was going to be the one that everybody looked to as the guy who would be able to plead a case for anyone, anywhere. You want to talk about pressure. I mean, this was a situation that he just happened to come into. He didn't ask for this. Now, quickly, he does very well in school, and he ends up as one of the Pharisees. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know the story of the Pharisees. You know uh, a little bit about them. If you're not real familiar with the Gospels, this is really, this is really easy um, to explain kind of in a, in a sort of zoomed out kind of way. Pharisees were like super church people. I don't know if you know a church person, right? Um, but, but, if, but somebody who just, it's like their thing uh, to do the whole religion gig. It's all about jumping through hoops, and it's all about having the right appearance, and it's all about whatever you have to do to make uh, others believe that you're making God happy and make themselves believe that they're making God happy. Well, the Pharisees were super church people. They had the cape and everything. Like, they were the, per- they were the people who were out to impress everybody with how religious that they were. And, and to give you an, uh, an insight about why I think things got so... Because if you've ever read the Gospels, you've noticed that the Pharisees and Jesus were constantly in a sort of knocking head sort of situation. I mean, all, all the time the Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying, hey, you know, they're trying to, trying to ask him questions to trip him up or trying to um, get him in trouble with people that are around. Eventually the Pharisees would be instrumental in putting Jesus on the cross. So why is there this... You know, keeping in mind, Paul's one of the Pharisees. Why is there this tension between the Pharisees and Jesus? Well, here's, here's the thing. You have to understand this to, to make sense of it. Human beings only have one way of evaluating other human beings, and that is performance, right? I cannot see into your heart. I don't know what your intentions are. All I can judge you by is your performance. What do you do? What can I observe that you do? So, the Pharisees we're very, very intent on figuring out how do you know whether a person is following God well enough? How do you know if a person's a good enough God follower? Well, you, as I said, you can't look in their heart, so you gotta, gotta base it off performance. There has to be something that you do. I mean, God said, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. I can't measure that. 
So the Pharisees decided to come up with some things people could do so that it could be measured, so that you could rubber stamp somebody as to whether or not they were good enough for God that day, right? So let me give you this example. It's kind of facetious, so bear with me. But if you were to come to me and say, Jonathan, I need to know how how I can know whether or not I'm a good enough Christian. You know, it's confusing for me to try to evaluate my heart and figure out where I'm at. That's, that's a little too loose. I, I want something where I can tighten it down and know for sure, am I a good enough Christian today? And I said, well, here's what you do. Four times a day, you have to sing this little light of mine. I'm going to tell you which four times, and it, you cannot be a second off. When the clock strikes that moment, you must immediately stop whatever you're doing and you have to sing this little light of mine. Now, if you do something wrong, you must immediately stop and sing this little light of mine. If you think you did something wrong, you come to the end of the day and you realize you might have done five things wrong and you forgot to sing the song, then you have to sing this little light of mine five times, right? And if you want to just show people around you that you love God, even if you haven't done anything wrong, well, you can sing this little light of mine, and that will prove to people that you love God. Now, here's what's going to happen, right? You're going to spend your life going, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This, right? You know, you're going to be buying groceries, right? 12 o'clock, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? You know? You're going to be talking to a friend. Oops, I think I, thought, I think I had a bad thought. This little light of mine. I'm gonna... It's religion-sponsored OCD. I have a little bit of OCD. I have to check a door five times to make sure that I shut it, right? Why? Because I'm fearful that I will have left it open. And what the, what the Pharisees were exploiting, and, and I don't think intentionally, but they were exploiting this fact that we fear not being good enough for God. We fear not being good enough for other people. And so they would give people hoops to jump through so that they could console themselves and comfort themselves into thinking, okay, I'm okay. Only problem is... If I instructed you to do that and you did that, you, some, something inside has to tell you God, God, God and you don't get any closer because you sing this little light of mine. I, I basically numbed you by giving you that. I've numbed you to what the connection really is between you and God. And that's what they did. So that's why the tension. Jesus comes to, to earth to this group of guys who now have built their life on performing. Their life has been about getting to their potential and getting away from their weakness by jumping through hoops to make God happy. And beyond that, now it's about everybody else around them seeing them jump through hoops so that they're not just good enough for God, they're good enough for everybody around them. And they now are fueled by respect. The only thing that propels them down the road is respect. People have got to think that I'm worthwhile. I got to hear messages from people that I'm... You know somebody like this in your life, right? Their ego has to be stroked. They have to hear from somebody that they're doing okay. If not, it's like they implode. And you have a whole group of lawyers, of of religious lawyers that are like this. You can't tell these guys that they're doing something wrong because they have to hear that they're doing well. And Jesus comes to earth and they give him credit at first for being a teacher. And they go to hear his teaching and they ask him for the pat on the back that they're used to getting from everybody else. And at first, Jesus very gently says, you know, there's some good stuff about you guys, but you guys actually have a, quite a few problems. And it was like, mushroom cloud, right? You can't say that to those guys. They don't get, the, the, the Pharisees always had to get an A. They were used to being the teacher's pet, they were used to sitting in the front of the class, and they were used to getting an A+. And they would, they would not be happy with anything less than that. And Jesus flunked them publicly. That's why there was the tension. 
And so, we don't, this is not the focus of our talk today, so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Pharisees and Jesus on earth. Just let it be sufficient to, to say that that tension grew so bad that the Pharisees would eventually put Jesus on the cross. The group of people that, that Saul belonged to, the fraternity of lawyers that Saul was a part of, literally was instrumental in putting Jesus Christ on the cross. And the, and the Pharisees thought that by doing that, they had dealt with this pesky Jesus problem. This guy who showed up and said that they were weak. They had spent all their life trying to get away from their weakness and prove that they were like, if anybody was living up to their potential, they were. And he showed up and said they were weak. Enough of that. Now we've, you know, we, the guy's gotten what he deserved. They killed him. They buried him. Enough of this Jesus stuff. We're done with this. The problem was Jesus only stayed in the grave for three days. He came out on his own power. And let me tell you what that does. The moment that a person says he's going to rise from the grave, does rise from the grave, everybody who sees him is going to be fearless in telling everybody around them what they saw. And so instead of stamping out Christianity, which is what they thought they had done, Christianity exploded. I mean, it became something that was spreading everywhere. And this, at that moment in time, is where we meet Saul. First time we see him in the Bible. He's one of these Pharisees. And he's livid. The first time we see him in the Bible, he's angry. And he's not just angry, he's aggressive, and he's hurtful, and he's spiteful. The first time we see him in the Bible, do you know what he's doing? He's going everywhere that he can find Christians, into homes like your home. And he's taking the dad and the mom in that home and handcuffing them and dragging them out and taking them to another city to be prosecuted and leaving the kids to fend for themselves. And somehow, he thinks he's doing the right thing. And he does it over and over again. And when he gets them to the city to prosecute them, he seeks the death penalty. The Bible's very clear. He wanted these people killed. Why does he want them to, why the death penalty? Because he doesn't like that they believe in Jesus Christ. He wants this thing put to bed. No more of this crazy Christianity stuff. Everybody else thinks that we're doing pretty good. It's only this guy that comes and says that somehow we're messing up. And we're not going to deal with that. We're going to put that to bed because, you know, God knows if anybody's right, we are. As a result, and he would say later in his life that it was, he sought out, he, he, he basically said, my hobby became to go find Christians and drag them off to jail. Can I tell you what the problem is with the, the way human beings measure other human beings? Remember I said that the only way to measure another person is by their performance, by what they do? The problem with that is eventually, if you do that long enough, you will come to believe that the only thing that proves I'm worthy, worthy of love, worthy of connection, worthy of relationship, worthy of a future, is how I perform. If I perform, then I'm worthwhile. I have self-worth. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of a relationship. If I don't perform, I'm not. It's almost like we've got this scoreboard in our minds. As long as I'm putting points up on the board, as long as I'm proving that I'm successful, as long as I have trophies in the trophy case and I'm achieving, then I'm, then I'm worthwhile and I'm worthy. But if my weakness is catching up to me and the other team is putting up too many points on the scoreboard, then I'm losing and we get to this point where we get very anxious and upset. And I think this is where Paul is. He knows he's losing on the scoreboard, 
Because every time he drags Christians off to jail, all he can hear in his head is the words of Jesus ringing it where, where Jesus said, you, got, you Pharisees have got trouble coming in, down, down the road for you because you know, you, you, if, if, if he, he uses a, the illustration of a dish. He's like, your life is like a dirty dish that's super clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's filthy. And Paul's hearing that ringing in his ears and he just can't handle it because that is, that is a quintessential in, or, 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 or a tantamount in his mind to, to Jesus saying, you're losing, and he can't can't handle that because that would mean that he's not worthwhile. See, the, the message that we have to be careful with is when we get to the point where if we've come face to face with our weakness, that it somehow communicates to us that we don't have anything valuable inside. Whatever the value is that I have is gone when I have to look my weakness straight in the eye. So by the way, here's the story that we're going to kind of focus on in our talk. There's a point at which Saul, like I said earlier, he makes it his hobby. When he's in his off time, so he, he has his normal hours working as a prosecutor. When he's in his off time, he gets warrants to go travel to other cities to find Christians in those cities and drag them back and prosecute them. This is his personal vendetta. It's his hobby. He gets a, a, a permission to go up to Damascus to arrest some Christians that he finds there. And this is where we find him. This is in Acts chapter 26. By the way, this is sometime later. Paul's an old man at this point, and he's telling what happened to him earlier in his life. So this is his firsthand account. And he says, On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and about noon, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We'll come back to that. So Saul said, then I asked, who are you, Lord? Which equivalates out in English as, who are you, boss? Right? Which is good. Right? If you have a blinding light from heaven shining on you and a voice from heaven speaking to you, um, that's the time to say, whoever you are, you're the boss. And I don't know who you are, but I work for you now, apparently. Right? Um, and the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I can't prove this. But I believe this is the point at which Saul thinks he's going to get zapped. Right? Um, he really had banked on the fact that Jesus was not who he said he was. He had really banked on the fact that Jesus wasn't really God. And now it is very, 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 very apparent that he was wrong. And everything that Jesus had ever said about his weakness, all the times where Jesus had gently tried to show, and eventually towards the end, a little bit more directly, but Jesus had tried to help the Pharisees come face to face with their weakness so that they could grow past it. And, and, and the Pharisees and, and Saul had just put it to the back of their head and said, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Now Saul is there and he's going, I guess it is true. I guess I am weak. I guess all the things that I thought I'd done to live up to my potential didn't really matter. And as he lays there with his back on the ground, can't see, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that Saul is thinking this proves that I'm not valuable at all. God's mad at me. That's fair. And now he's going to zap me. He wanted to tell me who he was just so that I would know how big a mistake I made. Here comes the lightning bolt. I'm going to end up a pile of ashes on the ground. And look at what the very next thing is that Jesus says. Get up and stand on your feet. Because I've appeared to you to do what? To appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. 
here's what I, here's what I want you to get. The moment that Saul, because when he said, who are you, Lord? And there was that moment where he recognized who Jesus was. And he was face to face with his weakness. This is so important. I hope you get this. The moment he was ready to come face to face with his weakness was the moment that Jesus promoted him. He didn't zap him. He promoted him. Do you know that if you hold a copy of the Bible in your lap right now, did you know that, that about half of the New Testament of the Bible that you hold was, was penned by this guy? His name would later become Paul. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But if you've heard of the Apostle Paul, this is who we're talking about. The, the, the man who Bible scholars say gave us the most brilliant explanations of grace, of faith, of salvation, of what it means to have a real relationship with God is the same guy that once was dragging people off to prison just because they believed in God. And if it hadn't been for that moment on the Damascus Road, I want you to know we would have never heard of Saul. He would have been just another one of those um, Jewish lawyers who prosecuted Christians in the first century. There were plenty of those. The only reason that we even have any idea who Paul was is because God promoted him to a whole new level and took him to a completely different life than he had ever thought he would ever live. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning because in our series, Shift, what we're talking about here is a downshift. Most of, this, most of the messages you'll hear in this series are about an upshift. God takes us, you know, seems like we're, sorry, I'm always dating myself in the 90s, seems like we're always stuck in second gear, right? And at some point, you have to shift up, but this is one time where God shifts somebody down. Why? Why would God do that? Why does God knock this guy off of his horse? What is the benefit to being downshifted, because some of you are going through that right now. You feel like you're having to come face to face with your weakness, and you don't like it, and, and believe me, I don't like it when I have to come face to face with my weakness either. It's not pleasant. And you wonder, why is God downshifting me? I wanna perform, you know? I wanna do some broken field running. I wanna prove that I can live up to my potential, but you feel like, man, I keep having to just come face to face with my weakness. Why, why am I having to do that? I wanna give you just a few axioms for life. Two I'm gonna give you really quickly, one I'll give you at the end. But if you only get anything from this talk, if you're a note taker, these, I'm, I'll tell you what, when, I'm, when I'm going through these, there's three things. I'll give you the first two now and I'll give you a third in a minute. But these are the things that this talk is built on that will hopefully help you. If you're like me and you struggle with the feeling that you need to perform, these things are ground zero of starting a brand new life where you get to be free and you get to be who you really are, okay? Here's, here's the first thing. What, what, what God wanted Paul to know is the significance in life is not determined, it, it, significance in life does not come from giving a great performance. It comes from living a great purpose. I'll, I'll say that again. S significance in life does not come from giving a great performance. It comes from living a great purpose. See, here's the thing. When, when, when God formed you as a person, he, he gave you a unique mixture of things that nobody else on this planet has. You have a unique mixture of talents, of skills, of abilities, uh, of life experience, a, a track that God has woven you through in the story of your life that is different than anybody else. They're raw materials that God has placed in you. And God wants to take those raw materials and coach you up on how to take them and use them and take them to the next level to make an impact on this world but so many of us are wrapped up in performance that our purpose has been on the shelf for a long time and it's still just raw materials. Now, to be fair, we're doing the best we can with those raw materials. Whatever comes naturally good to us, we get better and better at. 
and we add to those things, and we, come more, we become more skilled in the things that come naturally good to us, but we don't grow past our weakness because we're not ready to be coached. See, that's the thing. This was a new thing for me. I never realized this until I did the study for this week, and it's so counterintuitive, so hang with me because, because this is big. I, I never realized until this week that a person who is fixated on their performance a person that is focused on their performance, as I can so often be, cannot be coached. You would think that somebody who's fixated on performance would be looking for a coach, but it works the opposite way. If I have to know that I'm performing to feel that I'm worthwhile, then I can never face my weakness. Because when I face my weakness, it makes me feel like there's no hope for me. So because I can't face my weakness, I just leave it locked up in a closet, and I don't look at it, and I don't deal with it, and I never present it to anybody. I don't let people, now people around me see it, but I think they don't, and if they try to present it to me, I'm not gonna talk to them about it, right? I keep it under lock and key. I wanna live in the zone where I feel like I'm a performer, but because of that, nobody can coach me because a coach has to address your weakness. Elsewise, there is no point in them being your coach. And Jesus says, I want to coach you up on how to use those raw materials. But in order to do that, you're going to have to let me address your weakness. That's why all of a sudden when Saul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his life went from not really going anywhere to taking off is because finally, after a life of hearing that the only thing that mattered about him was his performance, he got it straight from Jesus that regardless of his weakness, he, he was, he, it was, now was the time he was ready to be promoted. I said the first thing is that significance is not achieved by giving a great performance, but by living a great purpose. Here's, here's the second thing. It's what I was just saying, but we'll put this into an axiom. I'm, I'm not ready to live my purpose until I'm ready to lean into my weakness. I'm not ready to, to live my purpose until I'm ready to lean into my weakness. Not recognize my weakness. Yeah, oh yeah, I know I have some issues. I don't have any interest in talking about them, but I know I have some issues. Not acknowledge it. Oh yeah, I know sometimes I can be that way. I mean leaning into it. Showing up in the gym and saying, Coach, I've got a problem with my jump shot. Coach, I've got a problem, uh, you know, once I'm in the key. I need, you, I need you to help me. I need you to help me. Show me how to do better at this, right? That's what, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for his kids to come to him and say, God, I've got a problem in this area. I really want to I, I get past it. I want to go somewhere, right? That's what he can do with. He can deal with the coaching. But what he can't deal with is when we're so fixated on performance and God tries to gently nudge us. Maybe it's through people who are around us who are gentle and loving and just try to give us some feedback, or maybe it's through his word, or maybe it's through conviction or whatever, and we get a little gentle nudge from God, and we go, no, I really can't talk to you about that, God, because if I talk to you about that, then I'd feel worthless, and if I felt worthless, I just wouldn't be able to handle that. If you're in this room, and you say, Jonathan, I'm, this has been a heavy talk, but I'm I am kind of like you. In some ways, I struggle with performance. By the way, all of us do to some extent. But if you say, Jonathan, I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes I struggle with performance. I can get kind of wrapped up in that zone. If, if God were to approach me like he approached Saul, hopefully not in as dramatic a fashion, but if God were to approach me and, and try to help me make a turnaround, what would he say to me? Well, based off of Saul's experience, let me give you just a couple things really quickly. And then I'll give you that last axiom I was talking about. We'll be done for the day. Here's the things that I think God would want you to hear. First off, I think that he would tell you, I don't want life to be as hard for you as it is right now. 
You're stressing out about your performance and it's really hard for you. I don't want life to be this hard for you. Did you remember that when, when, when Jesus was talking to Paul, he said it is hard for you. By the way, Saul's persecuting followers of God and God could have said it's hard for me. It's hard for me that you're chasing down believers in me. Or he could have said it's hard for those Christians. Hard for those Christians that you're dragging them off to jail. He didn't say it's hard for me or it's hard for them. He said it's hard for you. Because it's hard to live a life that's built on performance. Right? There's, he says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. For whatever it's worth. When, when, when somebody would guide cattle, you know, when somebody who was herding cattle back then in that agricultural, agricultural society, they would take a long stick and they would sharpen the end of it. And, and a lot of cattle would go the way that they were supposed to go when they were driving cattle, but there would always be some that would stray off. And so the, the person that was, that was trying to move the cattle would go and they would poke the cow in the knee with those sharp sticks to, to coach them back into where they needed to go. Was it painful? Yes, coaching usually is a little painful. But the purpose was to, to, to help that. I mean, here's the deal. If you've got a cow that's getting ready to walk off of a cliff, the pain of getting prodded a little bit to go back in the right way is a lot less than the pain of you know, going splat on the other side of the, the cliff, right? So there were, you know, most of the, of, of the cattle who had to get prodded would respond to that. They would respond to the coaching and they would go where they needed to go. But there would always be one stubborn animal that you would try to prod with the sharp stick and the animal would get mad and kick with its knee against the sharp stick, which is not painful for the person that is prodding that cow. The only person that's painful for is the cow that's kicking against the prod. And what Jesus was saying is, you're not making this hard on me, you're making it hard on you. I had a couple of conversations this week with people that I really needed to give some gentle feedback about some things related to my experience of them and I knew that it could be construed as negative, but I tried to present it in the most gracious way I possibly could. We'll be talking about this in the next series, how to present something with grace and truth. Try to present it in a, in, in a way that was helpful. And, and in both cases, um, it was like we went from, I'm talking to a teddy bear to I'm talking to a por- porcupine like that, right? Because it's hard to be coached when it's about our performance, right? And so the, 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 I guess the thought that I'm trying to kind of help share here is that at some point we have to be we have to open our heart to hearing the, the information that God wants to share with us. If not, if we just always shut down when, when, when God is trying to give us feedback, then God can't help us move forward. So here's the other thing that I believe that God would, God would say. After, after reminding us that not accepting coaching is making it hard for us, it's hard for you to fight against my coaching because that's exactly what... Jesus said. Look at, you know, if you look at it in the original language, he's, he's literally saying this. It's hard for you to fight against the coaching that I'm trying to give you. And then he said, then, then basically it's clear that God was trying to communicate that your value is not equal to your performance. I'm talking to a mom in this room and you are giving everything you've got to your husband, to your kids, to, to your work, to everything that is on your plate and you're doing it because you're just trying to prove that you're worthwhile and you're just trying to prove that you're worthy of love. And you're pushing yourself to the limit. And you are straining yourself past what you have the capacity to give. And Jesus would come to you today and say, your value is not equal to your performance. You can take a deep in through the nose, out through the mouth. 
it's going to be okay. You are valuable. You are worthy. How, how, do, how, how could I make that point and you know for sure that it's true? Because what Jesus wants us to understand is the only performance that has ever mattered is the one that Jesus gave on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus stretched out his arms and hung there for six hours on a Roman cross suspended between heaven and earth as if fit for neither and, and paid the price for our sins. It was a message telling every human being on the face of this planet, you are worthy of love. You are loved so you can stop trying to earn love and stop trying to perform and go live your purpose because that has already been settled. You are loved. I'm running short on time, but let me encourage you, if, if this is something you struggle with, you might later look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 19. We won't go through it right now. But in that passage, Paul says, you know, we used to measure people by a human standard of measurement. He's saying we used to, use, he said, we used to measure people by their performance. And he said, now, now that we know Christ, we don't have to do that anymore. And he says, because of Christ, when, when, when Christ comes into somebody's life, he, he makes a new person out of them. A lot of people have been confused by this because the, the message of that passage, a lot of people think is that a person can be a, you know, a hellion and then meet Jesus and then two days later, they're a little angel. It doesn't work that way. Right? What Paul is saying is that God, when God comes into us, our value skyrockets. I mean, we were already valuable because every human being is valuable in God's sight to start with. But when we accept Jesus Christ, we become adopted into his family, the Bible says. And because we become adopted, our value shoots through the roof. It skyrockets regardless of our failures, regardless of our weaknesses. Our value is intense. And by the way, those of you who are married, little marriage coaching from the stage right now, it doesn't hurt to remember this. Sir, your wife is a daughter of God and her value is intense. Ma'am, your husband is a, is, a, is a child of God, a son of God, and his value is in intense, regardless of their failures, of their weaknesses, of the things that they can't do perfectly, they are valuable. They deserve to be treated that way. You know, the one common thread in this series is that each of the individuals that we're looking at has a name change. Sometimes God gives them a name change, sometimes other circumstances, but the name change kind of has to do with a shift, a change in their life, and, and uh, Saul is no, uh, uh, no exception to that rule. He had his name that his parents gave him, Saul, in demand, um, you know, asked for. Uh, but in the Roman culture, you would also get what would be called a given name. And the given name would be something that you wouldn't get until you were starting to grow up. And people around you would, would notice something about you, and they would kind of give you a nickname based off of it. But it would become a legitimate name that you had. And so as he's growing up, and there's these kids around him, you know, and everybody's kind of getting to know him, they, did, they give him this nickname, and the nickname is Paul. And, and in, in, you know... In the Roman vernacular, Paul meant um, little or small or shorty, you know. I don't think he liked that name very much. You know, he's trying to perform. He's trying to prove to the world that he's valuable. And all the kids around there are calling him shorty, you know. Don't you call me that. Don't you know who I am? My name is Saul. I'm going to law school. You're going to need a lawyer someday. Delinquent. Don't call me shorty, right? I mean, we don't know this for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us what, what his appearance was. But we do have a book, extra biblical. It's not a, not a book in the Bible, but it does give us an, uh, a description of Saul's appearance. And we don't know how legitimate this is. But if we were to trust it, and this is a description of a middle-aged Saul, it was that he was short, bald, and bow-legged. Right? Now, if you know anything, you know that in the Old Testament, the Bible describes Saul as incredibly handsome and a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Right? So this is something he has to live down. Everybody, you know, kids in the neighborhood calling him, hey, I know his name is Saul, but I think it would be a little bit more accurate to call him Shorty, you know? I don't think he really resembles Saul, if you know what I'm talking about, you know? 
He fights that his whole life. You know, by the time he gets to be a Pharisee, nobody around him knows that his nickname is Shorty. He's kept that locked away in the closet with all his other weaknesses. The Bible says later on, there's a, there's a verse, it's very short, uh, and the first half of the verse says, Saul, who was called Paul, and it's like a, from, from then on, every time we see him in the scripture, he's referred to as Paul. We talk about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Shorty, right? And I can't, I have a, you know, my imagination is, is crazy, I get that, but I have this imagination that, you know, he's going about, now, now he's, a, he's a follower of Jesus, his whole life has turned around and it's changed, and he bumps into one of the, grown, you know, now he's grown up, but he used to be one of the kids in his neighborhood, right? And he comes and says, hey, Saul, I've heard you did so great, and I heard about how you did well with law review, and I, and I heard about that great case that you tried, and man, you are famous, man, it's so cool to meet up with you again, Saul, you know, it's really fine. Just call me Shorty. Just call me Shorty. You know what that is? That is a person who isn't afraid to lean into their weakness. So, you know, I don't really care if people think I'm weak because God has promoted me and it really, it, the, the, the whole process of being promoted came when I started to lean into my weakness. Did you know in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, Paul's talking about uh, his thorn in the flesh, you know, um, something that has even become part of our cultural vernacular, even though people have, some people have, don't even know where it comes from. They'll talk about having a thorn in the flesh. Paul said he had some sort of problem. We don't know what it was. We just know that it made his life more difficult. And he said that he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. Now check this out. My power works best in weakness. He said, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Here's the thing, and please hear me on this. If I live my life worried about performance, I'm only ever going to get the product I can coach myself to get. But if I open myself up to my purpose, I will get the product that God can coach me to get. And there's a big difference, right? I, um, when I was, I think two, I have to ask my dad, he could, he could verify this for me. When I was two, um, I had no idea how to, how to tie my shoes. You know, I, I was, uh, I guess, a late learner on that. And, and really, it wasn't even like it had been something we'd worked on, you know. Um, but I, I, was, I was determined to tie my own shoes. My dad would say, hey, you know, Jonathan, we're, we're, we're going somewhere. Um, get, go grab your shoes and I'll tie them for you. And I would say, no, I do it myself. And I would go get my shoes, and I would put them on, and I would create a spaghetti mess of knots that no Boy Scout has any idea how to get untied. And I would sit there for, you know, 20 minutes with my brow furrowed, trying to puzzle through how to, how to tie the shoe. And I keep muttering to myself, I do it myself, I do it myself, I do it myself. And my dad told me, of course, this is not in the meter of my memory, I'm trusting my dad for this, but... Eventually, I would take the shoe off, and I would go up to my dad, wherever he was, and I would hold the shoe up, and I would say, fix it. Fix it. You know, I was never going to, number one, get my shoe tied, or number two, learn how to tie my shoes, until I was ready to show up to my father and say, this is a weakness, I don't know how to do this. Can you fix it? And this is what I'm saying. We have a heavenly father who says, I want to help you. 
I want to do some things for you, and I want to teach you to do some things that you don't know how to do. But at some point, you're going to have to quit sitting there, I do it myself, I do it myself, I do it myself. And you're going to have to bring it to me, and you're going to have to say, fix it, fix it. And he says, when you do that, do you know what, you know what Jesus said? He said, you will know the truth. See, that's a moment of truth. As long as I sit there and I'm nodding stuff up, I'm fighting the truth. Because the truth is I don't know how to do this. And I'm fighting it and I'm fighting it. And when I finally go to my heavenly father and I say, this is a weakness, can you fix it? It's a moment of truth. And Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? It will set you free. That's what he asks of us. And when it happened for Paul, one downshift changed the entire world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing group of people who are here this morning. Thank you for their desire to follow you. I pray that in each of our lives, we would not obsess over trying to figure out how to prove that we know how to do something when maybe the truth is we just don't. And we need to bring it to you and say, fix it. Because you can and you love us. So thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning.